We are um, still in the life of Jesus, his teachings, the teachings and parables of Jesus is this class series. So Jesus consistently teaches about how precious the kingdom of heaven is and how God is calling us into it every day in the most ordinary of ways. And Jesus embeds all of his teaching in healing after healing. In today's class, we'll be switching over to the Gospel of John. Now, remember that John's Gospel is a little different than the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is a compound word meaning essentially sync optic or seeing things from the same viewpoint. All three of those writers tell the stories more or less without commentary. They just narrate the events the way they happened as best they could remember or you know, whatever they could gather from the witness of others. John, on the other hand, seems to be telling the stories in hindsight. I mean, they're all telling him in hindsight, but he's just, he's not doing like a, a history. He adds a whole lot of commentary. In fact, his whole first chapter is nothing but commentary. And throughout the book, he frames the stories so as to make particular theological points. For example, when Jesus shows up to be baptized, John writes in his book that when John the Baptist sees him, he cries out, there he is. He's the one I was telling you about. He, the one who is greater than me. He is the Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. Now, None of the other Gospels say anything like this happened at all. In fact, this is the first time we even hear the phrase, Lamb of God. There is no reference to any such thing in the Hebrew Bible. All we can figure is that he means to refer to Jesus as being holy, like the lambs that are sacrificed every day at the temple. Later Christian writers take this to mean that Jesus himself was offered as a sacrifice to God. And we'll run across this viewpoint later and we'll talk about it more then. But for now, all we need to notice is that this viewpoint of John's has to be coming after the crucifixion, right? Otherwise, it makes no sense at all. This is not something Jesus said, nor is it consistent with the other gospel accounts of his, you know, very early ministry. Therefore, it's very unlikely it was actually said at the time. Doesn't mean it wasn't said. It doesn't mean it isn't valid. But it does mean that we need to be very aware of John's viewpoint whenever we read his accounts of events. We need to be aware that John select, selected the events, he adapted events, and perhaps even added events or words so as to make his theological points. So this is our first taste of Christians, after the fact, trying to make sense of it all. This first story happens as Jesus and his disciples are walking along a street in Jerusalem. From the context, we can guess that he's walking along Siloam Street, just south of the temple. And as they are walking, they see a blind man begging by the side of the road. Now, this man is well known to them 
and they know he has been blind since he was born. The disciples say to Jesus, this man was born blind. So who sinned, him or his parents? There's that worldview again. The people of this day and this region truly believe that a physical illness or being blind or anything like that is a punishment from God for sin. That's what they think. Jesus, of course, knows better. He says, neither one of them sinned, neither this man nor his parents. Exactly. We know that God does not punish us like this as a result of our sins, but that God does everything possible to heal us and make us whole. And that brings us face to face with what is called theodicy, theological justice, the justice of God. It's the question, why do bad things happen to innocent people? And here, you're going to have to make a choice in how you interpret this passage. You're going to have to decide whether you think the words Jesus speaks next, according to John, were actually what Jesus said or whether John is trying to answer this question of theodicy. According to John, Jesus says, It happened so I can do this miracle to display the power and glory of God. Time is short. Night is coming. But for now, I am in the world, and I am the light of the world. So you can, you know, take that or leave it as what you get to pick here. But I'm going to tell you the story. So Jesus spits on the ground. He makes mud with his spit and spreads the mud on the man's eyes. Then he tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The word Siloam um, comes from a Hebrew word, which means, among other things, to burst forth, to send out or set free. The pool is right here at the end of Siloam Street, within sight of the temple. The man fumbles his way to the pool and, washing the mud from his eyes, discovers that he can see for the first time ever in his whole life. You can bet that man is jumping for joy, hollering and running around. The people are astounded. Everyone knows this is the blind man, but... That can't be right. People start saying, no, it's not really him. This is just a man who looks like him. (laughs) But the man says, no, no, it's me. It's really, really me. And the people ask him, what happened? And he tells them, it was that man called Jesus. He made some mud and put it on my eyes and told me to go wash at Salon. And when I did, I could see. Well, of course, the people start looking for Jesus. The man has no idea where Jesus went. As you know, when someone is healed or gets well, the first order of business is to go to the temple to be declared clean by the priests and be able to reenter into the community. So when they get to the temple precincts, the people bring the man to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are not priests. They are a political party keepers of the religious rules about how to live and how to act. 
The Sadducees are another political party. They're, these are all Jews, and they are responsible. The Sadducees are responsible for like the day-to-day -day operation of the temple. Just being a Sadducee or a Pharisee does not make you a priest. Although at this particular time, the high priest and many of the other priests are Sadducees. The Sadducees tend to be more upper-class elites whereas the Pharisees are much closer to the people. The Pharisees are much more accessible, and they are glad to tell the people what is pleasing to God and what is not. So it makes sense that the people bring the blind man to the Pharisees before they take him to the priests. And the Pharisees ask the man, how did this happen? And once again, the blind man tells his story. But some of the Pharisees say, this man, Jesus, cannot be from God. Today is the Sabbath. He is not keeping the Sabbath. But other Pharisees say, but how could he do such a miracle if he is a sinner? The Pharisees cannot decide. So they turn to the blind man and say, what do you think? You're the one he healed. And the blind man says, oh, he's definitely a prophet. But the Pharisees are unconvinced. They think maybe this is a trick. Maybe this man really wasn't born blind. So they call the man's parents in and question them. Is this your son? They ask. Was he truly born blind? Explain how it is that he can now see. Well, the man's parents are trembling in their shoes. They know the Pharisees have already declared that anyone who claims Jesus is the Messiah will be expelled from the synagogue. I want to quickly point out that this is another hint that John may have manipulated this story a bit. The temple is not the same thing as a synagogue. There is only one temple. There are many synagogues. The synagogues are the local gathering houses. So maybe the Pharisees had made a blanket statement on behalf of all the synagogues, but that doesn't sound entirely plausible. The synagogues are more locally run. So nevertheless, there was definitely animosity between the Pharisees and Jesus, and the man's parents were right to be scared of the repercussions. They essentially throw their son under the bus here. They say, uh, yes, this man is our son. And yes, he was born blind, but we have no idea how it is that he can see or who it was that did this. He's an adult. Let him speak for himself. Thanks, mom and dad. So the Pharisees call the man up a second time. Tell the truth, they say. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. But the man replies, well, that may be. But the fact is, I was blind and now I see. The Pharisees ask, what exactly did he do to you? How did he do it? At this point, the man loses his temper and says, really? I told you already and you didn't listen. Do you want to hear it again? Are you wanting to become his disciples? 
oh my gosh, the Pharisees totally lose it. They scream, you, you are one of the disciples. We are disciples of Moses. God spoke to Moses, but who knows where this Jesus guy comes from? And the man says, oh yeah, that's funny. You don't even know where he comes from, huh? He opened my eyes. We know God doesn't hear sinners. God hears the God-fearing person who does his will. Whoever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind? If he were not from God, he could not have done this. Well, that tears it. The Pharisees toss the man out on his ear, screaming, you son of a, how dare you lecture us? Well, Obviously, the translations we have are watered down a little bit here, but if you read the Greek, you can see that my colloquial translation is pretty darn close to the words they use. Jesus, of course, hears what happened, and he goes looking for the man. When he finds him, he asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answers, well, tell me who, it is, who he is, and I will believe in him. And Jesus says, you have seen him. He is speaking to you. And the man worships Jesus saying, Lord, I believe. Now, wait a minute. Jesus did not say he's the Messiah. He only said he's the son of man, which is a title he's adopted and has been using these past months. Why would this man understand the quote son of man to be the Messiah or someone divine or worthy of worship? Well, with one single exception, the title Son of Man is only used in the Hebrew Bible when God or angels are speaking to a regular human being. It's mostly used for God speaking to the prophet Ezekiel in his book. But that one single exception where son of man is not talking about just a regular person, that single exception is a doozy. <laughs> it's in the book of Daniel in a dream he has where he sees God, who he calls the ancient of days. Daniel says, I saw one like the son of man, meaning a human, coming in the clouds of heaven. And he was led into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And he was given authority, glory, dominion, and power. All people of every nation worshipped him, and his kingdom will never pass away. Well, the man born blind definitely knows this very, very famous passage. It is one of the most stunning passages describing the Messiah. When Jesus calls himself, quote, the son of man, everyone, all the Jews know he means he is the Messiah. He is this son of man, the one with authority, glory, dominion, and power. He is the Messiah, the prophesied king. According to John, Jesus then tells the man, for judgment, I have come into the world, so those not seeing will see, and those who do see will become blind. Now, that is a very interesting statement, especially since Jesus just told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that they're not to judge anyone. 
Is judgment reserved for Jesus alone? Well, actually, yes. If you go by what John the disciple writes, outside of the Gospel of John, Jesus never says he is going to be the judge of anything. In fact, outside of the Gospel of John, when Jesus mentions judgment, he always puts it in the context of being judged by what is effectively a jury of your peers. In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, he tells his disciples, do not judge others, for you will be judged by that same measure. Then later, in a tense exchange with the Pharisees, he's going to tell them that the men of Nineveh will stand at the judgment and condemn their generation because the Ninevites believed Jonah and repented, and now someone greater than Jonah is standing right in front of them. And Jesus also says in this same place, the queen of Sheba will condemn this age because she traveled from the ends of the earth just to seek out Solomon's wisdom. And yet here is a greater wisdom right in front of you. And in another place, Jesus tells his disciples that in the rebirth, the the new age, the regeneration, when he sits on the throne of glory, it will be the 12 disciples who judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's all Jesus has to say about judgment. There are a couple of other passages, but they have the same point. You will be judged by people just like you who have been in a similar situation. And all of these are the words of Jesus in the Gospels other than the Gospel of John. Now, compare this overall flavor about what Jesus has said about judgment in Matthew and Luke to the words John puts in his mouth. In John, Jesus says, the father judges no one, but has turned all judgment over to the son. The father has given the son of man authority to judge. Those who have done good will be resurrected to live, but those who have done evil will rise to be judged. But even here, where John says Jesus has been given authority to judge, even John does not say Jesus will judge people. In fact, in other places in John, Jesus clarifies this exact point. In another dialogue with the Pharisees, Jesus says, you judge as humans do, but I pass no judgment on anyone. If I did, though, my judgment would be just, for I stand with the Father. Before Jesus' crucifixion, John will insert another passage where Jesus says, if anyone hears my words but does not do them, I will not judge them. I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is, however, a judge for such a person, and the judge is my words themselves. For I have only spoken what the Father gave me to say. Now that sounds as if Jesus is going to let the facts speak for themselves. If all is revealed and seen in the light of truth, everyone will see for nothing can be hidden any longer. In this passage and some of the other, quote, judgment passages in John, 
Jesus begins by stating he is the light of the world. Jesus makes it clear that he has come to shine light where there is darkness. And that's what we're called to do too. It is in the context of bringing light, shining into dark corners so the truth comes to light, that Jesus uses the word judgment. It's very helpful to envision judgment in this way. Like sunshine that allows those with weak sight to see far better, but blinds those who already think they see. The light reveals what is hidden in secret, both the good and the bad. So now we have a better understanding of this verse here where Jesus is speaking to the man who was born blind but can now see. This whole story of the man born blind is only found in the Gospel of John. It may have literally happened, but it also may be an allegory he set up for this central theological statement. For judgment, I have come into the world so the blind will see and those who see will become blind. The way Jesus judges is not at all the way we might have envisioned judgment all these years. He judges simply by bringing the truth to light where everyone can see it. A summary of all these judgment passages might be, everyone will see the truth. Jesus has the authority to judge, but it is our peers who will condemn our obstinate, hard-hearted choices. Jesus' words themselves, the words we reject, will stand in stark contrast to our deeds and will therefore condemn us. Judgment sounds embarrassing, even humiliating, right? But it does not sound like fire and brimstone. We must always, always remember God's mercy, which Jesus explicitly embodies. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 7, 24, you judge as humans do, but I pass judgment on no one. Jesus holds all of his authority with an open hand. He holds it palm up to God. And we know God is incredibly, eternally merciful and tender. Throughout all of scripture, the harshest judgment and the worst repercussions have always fallen on the heads of those who set themselves up in God's place and use that power to harm others and to benefit themselves. Hard-heartedness has to do with refusing to love each other and to treat each other with justice. Well, that's a lot of talk about judgment. But it's important that we get a good solid feel for how Jesus views judgment, because later New Testament writers will have a ton to say about it. And we need to have a touchstone we can come back to as we try to interpret their words. So where were we in the story? Oh, yeah. Jesus tells the man, for judgment, I have come into the world. So those not seeing will see and those who do see will become blind. And the Pharisees are like, what? Are you saying we are blind? Well, yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. The Pharisees puff themselves up. Clearly, they don't see themselves as being blind. 
And Jesus says, well, if you were actually blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But since you claim you can see, your sins remain. I'm sure that alone is enough to enrage the Pharisees. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues. I'm telling you, Pharisees, whoever climbs over the wall of a sheep pen or comes in any way except the gate is a thief. The true shepherd comes in through the gate. So think about the context here. The Pharisees have just insisted, basically, that they are not blind. But Jesus is saying they are frauds. And even worse, they are intentionally trying to steal God's own people away. Jesus says, the gatekeeper knows the shepherd by sight, and even the sheep know his voice. And when the shepherd brings his sheep out, he alone will lead them. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from a stranger because they do not recognize his voice. Well, this goes right over the Pharisees' heads. So Jesus spells it out for them. He says, guys, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves, and the sheep have not listened to them. Thieves only come to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come to give life, abundant life. And whoever comes in and out through me, through this gate, will find pasture and be kept safe. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. He's not like a hired hand who runs at the first sign of wolves. I actually care for my sheep. And I have other sheep. Sheep who are not of this pen, I will bring them also, and they too will listen to me. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Then we get to a little theology from John here at the end of the story. Jesus says, the father loves me because I lay down my life and I will take it up again. I lay it down of my own accord and I have the authority to take it up again. The father has commanded this. Now, of course, the crucifixion and the resurrection have not happened at this point in the story. This, you know, Jesus could be prophesying. But to me, it seems like this is probably John's theological view of the story of the good shepherd given in hindsight. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just pointing out how it seems to be added to the story at the end as commentary. Now, none of this actually resolves the Pharisees' dilemma. Half the people who hear Jesus think he's demon-possessed and a raving lunatic, while the other half point out that the things he says don't sound like mad ravings. And besides, how could a demon heal a man born blind? We'll take a breath here and ponder Jesus' view of judgment and talk about what the implications might be. Welcome back. I uh, posted, uh, Martha, I saw your comment in the chat about the word evil, and I posted the um, uh, fire definition for it. I can see it. Okay, perfect. So we were talking about whether small transgressions are evil. (laughs) (laughs) And and we had great discussion that fluctuated, but um, 
Erica, no, Miss Ellen brought in other scripture of John uh-huh. that, you know, <clears throat> we compared and contrast a little bit according to this. Uh-huh. And, um, and Erica brought up the refining fire. I mean, we've had, I'm still struggling with it says we'll be condemned. Right. Did you read my footnote at the bottom? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay. Yep. Because because the the word condemn is a different word than the word judge or judgment. Right. Um, so so um, to judge is crime, and judge against or condemn is kata crime. Kata meaning against. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes um, it, the final crime gets translated as condemn. Um, and that is a, a that is a, a, a usage of it, but I, I try to be cognizant, especially when what Jesus seems to be saying, if it all of a sudden gets inconsistent, then I go back and I'll look which words were used. Right, right. And that's what I was going to say. So, so we've all been raised on a mistranslation of a Greek word. You know, every translation has an agenda, you know, and they try and in these later, more modern agenda, more modern translations in our times, the translations are done by committees and they try generally harder to not have it have a particular slant although there are some that are clearly slanted um uh the the brand new new revised standard version updated edition you know they tried very hard to bring in new the new te- the new things we've discovered about the manuscripts um since the last translations that were done in the 40s and 50s and 70s um but even still you see them smoothing words over like when the pharisees say you son of a you know they don't exactly word it like that when 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 they translate it so you have to just always keep your wits about you and have as a touchstone the central themes that you know about god Mm -hmm. and that's why i do appreciate your your etymology and um Oh, shoot, what was the other thing? Oh, your literary tools that you bring to us. Yeah. So I saw Shirley had a comment and then Martha. I have a question, actually. Um, I'm getting an echo in my headphones. Sorry. Judgment here. Are we talking about like judgment of your acts if you're going to get rewarded as opposed to condemnation and punishment? What do y'all think? Well, if, if, if we go back to what you were saying in the teaching portion about the judgment being more done by our peers, um, then it seems like it would be, um, we would experience either um, a sort of an girl out of boy, you know, you've been doing good as opposed to public shaming because things that we had been doing that were causing harm or were going against God's teaching um, would be brought to light. 
and everybody could see us for who we really were. And can you it also says not to judge. Mm -hmm. So I'm very confused. So, so talk about that. Let's talk about that. What do you know, we're talking about future judgment. Are we talking about current judgment? I'm very confused. I think yeah. that, you know, certainly God's time is a pretzel time, the past, present, and future. God is not in linear time, right? <laughs> so anything that holds in one place needs to hold all the way through. Well, to that end, Ellen, could you could you reference the Bible verse you said at the end that we were discussing about how it sounds like it's everyone? He's bringing along everyone. Well, and I'm I'm yeah, it, it's in the last box, um, Pastor Gail, the John 12, 46 through 49. But now so I just read the top portion and I didn't read the second paragraph. And so now it almost sounds like a contradiction a little bit because the first portion says, you know, if anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person for I do not or I did not come to judge the world, but save the world. So in our group, we were kind of talking about the possibility of, you know, us doing good and you know, things that might allow us to, you know, be kind of following God's word. But we said that kind of gets tricky because then we start judging, well, you're good enough and you're not. So anyway, we kind of had that conversation. But then the second part, it says, now it adds, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. Um, but again, it says the father versus Jesus. So I don't know. I think I confused myself on that one. But what does it say the judge is? Um, it says. Judge three down here. The Greek word. No, no, the no. Very like, words like, like, I have. like the, 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 there is a judge for one who rejects me and does not reject my words. The very words I have spoken will be. Yeah. Okay. It's not Jesus. Yep. Not God. It's the words. Hmm. So, so then that brings us back to the one above. If anyone hears my word, but does not keep them. I do not judge. Right. Right. The words are going to stand alone. He said, you know, that. I've told you, <laughs> you know, I've, is it like when we say the words speak for themselves, right? Right. But then to the top, but even if you hear the words and you don't do them, then what? I still don't. So is, is it kind of saying that your conscience, I mean, Will be it will be the judge because you know the words and then you do against the words, then you get that little bit of guilt, and that's when the judgment is. Is that what it's saying? That came up in our room. It's the recognition. Mm -hmm. And what is the judgment? Right. The the judgment is the the words judge right so the words tell you so the i was thinking of the woman at the well that we talked about when she spoke out loud jesus did not condemn her she understood and then realized she wasn't condemned to always live that way 
and she went and told everybody about it. She witnessed. I don't get it. Sorry. I'm That's lost. okay. <laughs> because judging to me, I'm in the realm of like the maybe because of all that history of what we've been taught and all that. I mean, judging is, you know, getting the stamp of approval or getting thrown in the pit. So I know it's not that, but what is it then? I mean, it means you're yeah. in other level of hell that's not quite so good i mean uh, heaven that's not quite so good uh you know you're not given certain privileges i mean to me judgment means judgment is past that you either meet whatever it is or you don't and I, i'm not quite i'm not able to sit that out yet i think i think about if i can gail's um balance the the judgment balance right and when you judge something, you're, you're comparing. You're, you're comparing this deed against this deed. Or, and I, I personally now, I mean, when you compare, it isn't about the other person. It's about you. And so I think possibly, as you guys said, this is supposed to be self-reflective. Does that make so sense? To, to the I question in the chat about um i'm having a really hard time believing people like hitler will be in heaven hitler persisted and persisted and persisted and persisted so one way to look at it might be he never took those words to heart well and also i had a i had a, a conversation with my former pastor about this one time because i was trying to sort out you know my belief in hell um, and his, his take on it gave me a lot of insight. He said basically that, um, from his understanding, hell was any place where God was not, and that we would have the choice to be separated from God, but that God's love is eternal and relentless. And even an Adolf Hitler would eventually be drawn to God. And then if we take that with, with, with Gail's continuing reference back to the, the fire being a purifying force, even an Adolf Hitler would at some point be, be subjected to the purifying fire to the point where Hitler would be able to see and feel the love of God and be drawn into the love of God. Um, so where are we until that happens? Of, yeah, from our perspective of time, you know, oh, that yeah. could be millennia from now. But, you know, however time is perceived beyond this life, however long that would take, the the you know, as my former pastor said, you know, God's love is relentless <laughs> and eternal. And it's God's will that we all eventually be restored to, to the relationship with God. I think some of the translations that are off, that seems to be a little off, I think has to do with human beings need to seem to have a need for punishment. They seem to need to see 
somebody doing something wrong, getting punished. And since sometimes that doesn't happen here on earth, they believe that, well, God's going to punish him when he gets there. Well, it did in the Old Testament. That's yeah. Part of the thing. Suddenly God's a different thing in the New Testament, in a way, from what they portray in the Old well, remember that 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 people are always perceiving God through the lens of their own culture. So um, we Sodom and Gomorrah didn't. That was God zapped them, right? <laughs> yeah, according to that story, yes, indeed, <laughs> they got zapped. <laughs> yeah, there was a, Dale also there was, said that that in the Hebrew Bible, um, the punishment was meted out in this life not promised for right. after this life. Um, Barb had it. Th- yeah, I think it's important. And I, I don't remember who brought it up to remember that, that we are humans and there's just something about our nature that feel like, I mean, we have the right to judge even <laughs> to compare um, again with comparison. That's us not, um, you know, that has nothing with anybody else. And, you know, sometimes when we compare ourselves to others and we make a negative comparison for ourselves, that's, that's not necessarily um, right, you know, because, you know, it, it makes, we say, oh, I'm just, I don't know how that person does that because I could never do that well. But, you know, we know that God equips us for what we need. And um, also, as far as people like Hitler, um, Starkweather, some of those other serial killers and people like that, I'm glad I don't have to make that judgment call. You know, he says that he will, you know, that they will make that final judgment call. That's not really up to us. It, it is perceived as evil by us. But that, again, um, bringing up that, you know, that. Hitler and others like that will be subjected to the refining fire. Who knows? Anyway, like I said, I'm glad I don't have to make that final judgment call. (laughs) Eric and Ellen. I have a couple comments. I think um, there's a need in us humans for justice. And there, this class keeps going back to humility. Like, God wants to humble us and it's in our nature when bad things happen around us for someone, something to make it right. And so I think the word judgment could be difficult for all of us because that there is a core need in us for wrong things to be made right. But then there's also this, what we're learning today, it, it throws it, well, it throws me off because it almost kind of feels like everyone gets a free pass and that kind of goes um against what we've been taught if i do this if i do that then i'll have eternal salvation which if we had the understanding that we were all in the unique journey to get to the same destination then potentially there would be more empathy rather than our need for justice um so this bible lesson again is reminding me of a i'm not god b there are so many things that i don't have the capability of understanding with this human 
brain <laughs> because I think if I did grasp it, then I would be my own God. So it goes back to another opportunity for us to be humbled and say, I am not a God. I may ne never understand truly the complexity of how all this justice and judgment and unconditional love, even for the people that we seem to be unworthy of that unconditional love, like the Hitlers and the serial killers. So to wrap it all, I just think it's a, another reminder, an opportunity for us to just hold God with an open hand and continue to try to allow the complexity of this really difficult topics to just humble us, to trust that somewhere, somehow in his pretzel time, in his, the fire of refining us, we are all going to get to the same place, which would be, he will be our shepherd that will, and he will be, we will be his flock, all of us, <laughs> some crazy way it will happen. Well, that's, I would say this week, even on a, a, uh, a courtroom kind of thing, they were talking about something being because of the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth idea that some of the folks had. And I think about that. There's also what some of Exodus that, that comes up at. It's just, y'all may have talked about it then. I wasn't in on that early. But I don't know if that's not necessarily God saying that. But a lot of people say it is. So I don't know. Well, well, let me, oh, Jesus says, you have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, <laughs> yeah, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's he, right. He says something else. And he doesn't hesitate to say something else when, when you know, the cultural lens has nope. gone off in left field somewhere, right? So, so I want somebody, oh, Martha, you have your, your hand up. Go ahead. So I really appreciated the conversation about Hitler. Um, and for those of us who tend toward universalism, I think it's really good to kind of continue to have those ideas inspected and challenged and kind of thoughtfully provoked. And I do, you know, have a real hard time if universalism, um, if grace is true. Um, but I was reminded of um, a conversation that I had some years ago with a woman who was really concerned about whether or not her mother was completely aware of everything that was happening when she was dying so that her mother would know when she died and that she would feel God's presence when she died. And that led me to a realization that why is, why is God done being in relationship with me at the moment of my death? That doesn't make any sense, right? So if I have unfinished business at the time of my death, is it not possible that that business might be carried on in a way that I don't understand today after I die. And I, to me, that's a very hopeful thing and a very beautiful thing. And it doesn't just relate to unfinished business. It relates to God has a continuing relationship with me. I think that Hitler could continue to reject God mm -hmm. after his death. Um, he could. He also, because God 
is God and we are his creation, something else might happen. And I have to just leave that where it is. There is no way on this side of the veil I'm going to understand that. And Hitler may may very well hear those words and go, too bad, so sad. That's who I am. Or he may say, oh, dear God. No. Yeah, that you said a continuing relationship, and that just struck me to remember that whole unimaginable thing about the time continuum not being the same, that there's something we can completely not even understand what it's like outside of the time where God is. So, you know, I it's hard to imagine an ongoing relationship. I think it just becomes a transformative whatever it is i'm not yeah it just can blow your mind to try to think about it you're intuiting in the right direction donna barb you have a comment <laughs> um well also i think that uh i just think that you know this the thing is about um does everything end i mean he says whoever you know whoever loves me will have life eternal. And that doesn't necessarily mean physical life. It means we'll have a relationship. You know, I, I like to look at it that even after I physically die, that I will continue having a relationship with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, so forth. You know, that, that that's not ending. His love for me is not going to end um, just because my body is has died. It, my, you know, he's still going to love me. So Anyway, I I had a new insight, uh, just in a deeper way that Jesus is not going to judge me. I don't know. There was something really profound. I think that also, I think there is a little bit of fear I have sometimes in my relationship with Jesus due to my upbringing of being worried that I'm going to be judged. And so I don't know where that leaves judgment, but it got judgment off of Jesus for me today which is really, I don't know, cool. And I feel, I don't know, I feel all warm and fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back and talk about some someone, I can't remember which one of you brought up um, a minute ago, maybe Renee, about, you know, how we need, we feel this need to punish someone who has hurt us or someone we love, you know, and we need, there is a sense that, you know, someone dies young or in a horrific way, or we lose a child or a loved one, you know, it feels like an injustice, doesn't it? It is, it feels unforgivable sometimes. And that, I just want to throw out here the idea that death and suffering are by their nature, unjust and not of God. They are a condition of living in this world. I have no idea why it's set up like that. I trust that God knows what God is doing, <laughs> you know, but what, when we experience this visceral reaction 
of loss and pain, our natural, our natural response is punishment is deserved. Punishment must happen to make this right. And I want to throw that out here to you to ask you, is punishment the right word? Is punishment the word Jesus would use in that sentence? What word would Jesus put in that sentence? What needs to happen? Transformation. That's a good one. Yes. Reconciliation. That's a good one. What does Jesus over and over? Jesus never uses that word. Forgiveness. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. That's That's God. Refinement. Refinement. What What does Jesus do? Over and over and over as a as a visible sign of what God wants to do in order to set the world right. Healing. Healing. Yes. What needs to happen in these situations is healing. Those of us who have been hurt, wounded, lost loved ones, missed time with people been raped, born, whatever horrible things have happened to us. That when we say punishment must happen to make this right, the truth is that punishment and violence never make it right. What makes it right is healing. The What is it, the restorative justice movements? Um, they say that South Africa came a lot farther in many ways than the United States has in reckoning reckoning with its racial horrors is because they invested in in reconciliation, which to me has healing in it. It may not be the on the physical sense, but that's visible. But I also think that the, the stress distress trauma one of the things that happens to the body is the cortisol levels go up and stay up and that does all sorts of horrible things to a body and i think there probably was physical healing for people who engaged in that process Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i know I had a personal experience when I was 19 years old, a good friend of mine was murdered and it was an unsolved murder for a long time in Corpus Christi. And one night, uh, one morning I was laying in bed listening to the news and I heard that my friend's killer was to be executed that night. And that ripped open 20-year-old wounds that were really hard. It's given me chills thinking about it. So I called up my girlfriend, and I went and spent time with her because there were like five of us that hung out together. And we spent the night drinking wine and consoling one another and trying to get through that night all over again and that's the day 
that my mindset changed from being pro-capital punishment to being anti-capital punishment. It did nothing to correct the situation. It did nothing. He, he just happened, the, the perpetrator just happened to be busted on an unrelated burglary in Houston and he confessed. And then he was executed for this other jewelry store robbery in a different town. And that changed my whole trajectory of how I felt about retribution against somebody and that type of strong, powerful experience humbled me completely and still does. And before then I was pro-capital punishment and I really thought it was going to fix things and and then nope. So an eye for an eye doesn't really help. No, it does not heal. And God is about healing all of us. So as we close, because we're running out of time, I want to just walk you kind of step by step through a just a, like a little chain of pearls here to ponder on, because I think that we have together gotten down to what matters in this case. But there is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as good and evil. We instinctively recognize them. That typically, as Julia just described, evil will often hide. It will put on sheep's clothing, won't it? It will make itself look good. It will pretend to be light when it is actually darkness. At As we are light in the world now, as Jesus was light in the world then, and as time continues past, present, and future, our purpose and the purpose of God as expressed through Jesus is to shine light where darkness is hiding evil, all right? And that purpose, as we've seen today, is to reveal in all the dark corners what is true, good or bad. It will, that light will reveal truth. And with that, as we know as humans, comes if we are if we are the ones who have been hiding things <laughs> comes things that we would use words like shame or conviction or guilt you know we we know what that feels like whatever that is that happens when what we have been hiding comes to light and at that point here is where 
judgment enters because the light brings to light truth and truth is what Jesus word is. Okay. It, 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 judgment is simply knowing what's in all the corners of that room. And at that point, what is God going to do? God is going to set things right. He's going to heal. And we know from our knowledge of how God, how the Holy Spirit works, that when God enters that place where all is revealed, all of the evil deeds, all the evil that has been hiding all around will be absolutely burned away. Right? And every hurt, every hurt, regardless of how deep it is, will be healed in the presence of God. Wrong things at that point have been made right. Evil is banished, not just doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> has been overcome by the Holy Spirit, has been burned in that holiness, and everyone has been healed. And none of that had to do with burning up people, with burning up souls. And you know why I know that? I know that because God created each soul and God does not create evil. So I'm going to leave you with those thoughts to consider that that may be a picture of what judgment looks like to God. I love you. I don't have all the answers. That doesn't have to be your answer. <laughs>